I mean, the idea is something like this: that if you uh, if you say ask what what's the uh, what's the atonement according okay. to Book of Mormon authors, right? And you start running through the book and uh, seeing how Benjamin talks about it or how Abinadi talks about it and that kind of thing. Uh, if you just abstract that and then say, oh, okay, now I've got the atonement, uh, it turns out you've actually killed the Book of Mormon, right? You have to recognize this in a much more complex weave and web of other, whether theological ideas or larger structures and uh, so on. If we take any one idea out, it'd be like ripping the liver out of someone and saying, now I know what a liver is. Grateful to be able to share this episode of the Cultural Hall with you. I know that we're getting in the habit of uh, publishing regularly again. I thank everyone who is new for sticking around and for loving the things that we do, uh, for finding us both in the Cultural Hall back row and for finding us over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. I want you to know that those things are noticed, that they're very appreciated, that if you are not a Patreon saint, there's something exciting coming um, for the holidays. So make sure that you keep listening and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss an episode and you certainly don't miss the announcements of what's to come. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and, uh, well, we got to welcome back to The Cultural Hall. He was in episode 531 with his buddy Matthew Bowman talking about introductions to Mormon thought. Uh, now he is here with me, and we're talking about Book of Mormon theology. It's Joseph Spencer. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. You know, in doing some research, which I rarely do for these episodes, <laughs> uh, one of the things that I came across was few scholars have read the Book of Mormon as much as Joseph Spencer. Now, did you write that, or is that a spin uh, spinster uh, on your behalf? Someone must have said that on my behalf. I have not said that, I think. <laughs> How many times would you suppose that you have read the Book of Mormon? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Uh, the difficulty is that I don't tend to read it straight through these uh -huh. days, right? I'm working on this or that passage, or just once in a while I'll read it through, but I don't know, dozens, dozens of times. Yeah. We're, not, we're not into hundreds yet? Oh, I might be. Okay. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, was gonna, I, just, I need to get to the bottom of this claim <laughs> that you are the most read of the Book of Mormon. Uh, you have this new book, which I, I just think is, is absolutely fascinating because... First of all, I was excited to talk to you about it, but second of all, I was excited to find out what exactly it is. It doesn't come out for a couple of weeks, so yeah. this is an opportunity where we get the scoop on all of this. It's called The Anatomy of Book of Mormon Theology, right. which seems like, okay, that's a word, and I'm going to put that word here together, <laughs> and, and now it is, and it comes in two volumes. So what is, as we look at, Anatomy of Book of Mormon Theology? What even is that? Yeah, so, uh, well, actually little bit of an inside story here. I was originally going to title the book Cure-Loms, Q-Moms, and Other Unrecognizable Things. <laughs> uh, but but Dr. Seuss would have come after you. That's <laughs> right. almost what that sounds like. Yeah. And the idea I was playing with there was that uh, we don't, when we read the Book of Mormon, we don't know what Cure-Loms are. We don't know what Q-Moms are. And in some sense, we don't know what Book of Mormon theology is. Right. Mm. So that's what I was playing with. Uh, some reviewers wisely warned me away from that title. Uh, so I've named it uh, The Anatomy of Book of Mormon Theology. And the idea there is something like this. Um, Book of Mormon theology, doing theology with the Book of Mormon is something like doing anatomy. Uh, you have to either kill the thing uh -huh. or you've got to somehow learn to understand how organic things move and live and work together. You can't separate it without taking, uh, taking the life out of it. So uh, Book of Mormon theology is, yeah, it's not... It's not like doing physics. It's not like doing math. You can't just get the building blocks and start to build up. It's a much more complex living affair that we've got to try to analyze. All right. So you got to give me an example of it or help me understand it a little <laughs> more because you've scraped away a little bit of it, but I'm still kind of going, 
Well, hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, the idea is something like this: that uh, if you uh, if you say ask what what's the uh, what's the atonement. According okay. to Book of Mormon authors, right? And you start running through the book and uh, seeing how Benjamin talks about it or how Abinadi talks about it and that kind of thing. Uh, if you just abstract that and then say, oh, okay, now I've got the atonement, uh, it turns out you've actually killed the Book of Mormon, right? You have to recognize this in a much more complex weave and web of other whether theological ideas or larger structures and uh, so on. If we take any one idea out, it'd be like ripping the liver out of someone and saying, now I know what a liver is. Oh, right? oh. So, so the advantage of, of knowing or studying or understanding this? Uh, so part of the idea is just the, that, um, what, as we, as we read uh, theologically, uh, we have to sort of constantly recognize that we're just looking at one tiny part uh, and always be, I mean, you almost want to say you have to kind of put everything back on the altar after you've studied it and recognize that you've only got a part and uh, yeah, there's something bigger, something more um, integrated that uh, that you're missing every time you study. So give me an idea, because I, you know, I mean, we started off the conversation talking about how many times you've read the Book of Mormon <laughs> and these grand claims, and we all know those people, right, who will say, "Ah, I can, I've got chapter and verse memorizer," yeah. you know, those kind of things. I remember a guy on my mission that was like that, and we would test him, and sure enough, he could tell you <laughs> that's probably a Alma chapter six or whatever, and, yeah. and be able to quote w- within the verses that it might be. Um, you know, we we typically tend to, as we start uh, start out, we start to read the Book of Mormon just front to back, like you mentioned, right? Yeah. And we kind of get to Second Nephi, and then we taper off, and then New Year comes, and we start again, <laughs> we and go. we, yep. you know, and we do it that way. And then as we get a little bit older, we start to do some of the things like you're talking about, where we go, I want to learn about Christ in the Book of Mormon, and so you know, we go through the footnotes and the chapters and all the things, and we just read about those particular things. So so. As we look at something like um, at, as this theology, this anatomy, this being able to see it as a living and breathing kind of thing and, and then put it in this scope, is there a greater benefit or is this just an additional benefit as to why we would do it this way? Yeah, uh, I hope it's just an additional benefit that uh, this all this theological work on the Book of Mormon that's going on that I'm at least a part of um, is uh, just one of many ways to read the book. But I think it's an important one. Because um, it's uh, it's the kind of study of the Book of Mormon that promises to wed like the everyday life of faith, what's happening in the pews, in your family home evenings, that kind of thing, and what's happening in the academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not purely academic, but it's also not purely devotional. But you get people who, as soon as they hear the word theology, their eyes sort of gloss over and go, <laughs> "Sure, all right, here goes Joe. Joe's, you know, he's going off on something. Yeah. How, how do we make this more accessible to, to everyday people as opposed to academics who would be like, the anatomy of theology, that sounds everything I'd want to be. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, to some extent, uh, it's a hard question because there's a part of me that wants to say it's okay if it's not always understandable to everyone. Mm. Um, sometimes to do good scholarly work, you have to just say, I'm speaking to scholars for now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone else can listen in if they want, but for a minute, I'm just going to think hard about what's going on here. But at the same time, I would hope that in the last analysis, right, at the end, there's always some sort of extractable kernel, something you can bring out of it and say, okay, we got somewhere. Here's this thing we definitely uh, can take back and say, this will clarify what it means to live a life of faith. So is that how it works? Various chapters kind of dive into, you know, different principles or different parts? 
So the book is actually uh, a little odd. It's um, it's a collection of things I wrote at lots of different times and for different circumstances. Uh, so it didn't begin as uh, as a kind of coherent project, mm-hmm. which also then sort of speaks to anatomy, right? It just mm-hmm. sort of grows organically. So it gathers essays from over the course of 10 years, 2008 to 2018. Uh, and at the beginning of that period, I don't think there was a... A discernible discipline of Book of Mormon theology. There were people writing on the Book of Mormon, mostly talking about ancient history and this kind of thing, mm-hmm. maybe a few other things going on, but there wasn't a, a kind of clear, oh, there's a conversation happening about the theology of the Book of Mormon. By 2018, there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in some sense, what's happening here is that these are just essays where I'm feeling my way into a discipline that's taking shape. Hmm. Are, are there other people that sort of endeavor in this kind of look at the Book of Mormon? For sure, yeah. So uh, a, a number of these essays are things I wrote in connection with what was originally called the Mormon Theology Seminar, now is called the Latter-day Saint Theology Seminar, uh, which Adam Miller and I run together. Mm. Uh, and so Adam and I uh, have done a lot of work thinking together about what it means to read texts, uh, scriptural texts generally, but the Book of Mormon in particular. Uh, and a lot of other people have been a part of that seminar. Uh, so there's certainly that. But also, yeah, there's emerged... Um, uh, a kind of whole crowd of voices doing this kind of work. Um, and it's appearing in places like the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, but also at conferences. There's a Book of Mormon Studies Association that meets every October, uh, and a lot of theological work is going on there. I like the idea that, like you and Adam Miller, who's been a guest here in the Cultural Hall before, too, and maybe people like Terrell Givens, etc. I like the idea of all of you in the room, and you're dressed with, you know, you've, you've got the sport coats with the leather patches in, <laughs> in the elbows, and you're just sort of arguing, no, Omni uh, 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 certainly wasn't saying this, and, and whatever the thing is, and just becoming very heated. Is yeah. it is it stuff like that? Are, are there big things where people are like, well, the Givens camp certainly feels this way about this, but you know, the Spencerites, you know, they follow this way of thinking. Um, it's never acrimonious, but it's not unlike that. Uh, actually, a, a quick story just for fun. We, uh, we had a seminar a couple of years ago. We were in Italy. Patrick Mason was on this seminar okay. with uh, Adam and me and a number of others. Uh, Patrick doesn't have a... Uh, Patrick can't keep a straight face if he thinks what you're saying is nonsense. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so we had some fun moments over the course of that seminar where someone would say something deeply theological, and Patrick's a historian uh-huh. with a theological edge, but he, he'd suddenly get this look on his face like, you got to be kidding me. You're saying that? You're, you can't really b- believe that, <laughs> right? So, uh, but yeah, it's never acrimonious, uh, but there are strong feelings about what the text is saying, but it's much more much more experimental than sort of, here's my thesis, here's my thesis, and we're going to argue this out. More sort of like, a, what can this do? What can this do? What, what I like about uh, the idea of theology, at least as I interpret it, is it's this idea of, yeah, well, maybe... And so like that scenario that you set up with Patrick Mason, like I feel like it's a lot of people that could be like, hey, this is sort of where I'm thinking and this is the foundation of where this comes from. But, you know, look no further than where we live 21st century right now. And there are a lot of people that are like, hey, what about this idea? And a lot of us going, what in the wow? (laughs) How how do you as an academic, as a theologian, as a, you know, all of those things, how do you kind of keep calm or not not have the, the, the face, the telling face of Patrick Mason as you listen to people? Um, I mean, part of what it is, I mean, my training's in philosophy, right? Uh-huh. Part of what it is to be a philosopher or a theologian, uh, I think is just to like, to sort of suppress that uh, automatic, uh, that sort of triggered response of just like, that can't be, right? Mm-hmm. You sort of suppress that and just say, well, what if? 
So you do, you're reading a text and you go, yeah, what if the word of here is doing something weird? Mm. And you just say, let's play it out like an experiment. Like set up the lab, run the experiment, let's see what happens. And if in the end it turns out nothing, no reaction happened, you go, oh, okay. Hmm. And you go back to work. Uh, but you have to sort of su- suppress that feeling in advance that, no, nah, that can't go anywhere. Um, and it really, yeah, it really does sort of set up a lab and kind of wild stuff happens. But over time, uh, some experiments run well and some don't. And you start to gather the ones that do and pictures start to emerge and you're getting somewhere. You know, I have to ask you, though, coming back to the very beginning of the introduction of this whole thing. You know, we had you on here just a few episodes ago talking yeah. about the introduction of Mormon Thought. That's a whole book series of which you're sort of reviewing and helping publish. Yeah. And then you've got this thing that's going on. Do you ever sleep? And what else <laughs> is going on? Because you're also a professor, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I am working on a lot of projects and I'm I think I'm going insane trying to keep them all, <laughs> keep them all, keeping them all running. Uh, luckily, I just uh, I just got back from a sabbatical, so I had some time to sort of slow down and finish off a lot of things, so that I'm not I don't have so many balls in the air. But yeah, are there other things that are coming that you can uh, tease uh, us with? For yeah, sure? for sure. Uh, I've got a a book that I've co-authored with three of my colleagues in religious education uh, at BYU. Uh, that's coming out probably Juneish, Julyish next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, called uh, Book of Mormon Studies. A, a let's see, a guide and an introduction and guide. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote that with Daniel Becerra, Amy Easton Flake, and Nick Frederick, and uh, and it is just what it sounds like. It's a kind of introduction aimed at students, lay readers, just what's going on in Book of Mormon Studies generally, the various approaches, the questions, what's happening right now. So that's coming out next year. And then uh, probably early 2023, I just signed a contract uh, for a book I've written on Isaiah and the Book of Mormon for the University of Illinois. Oh, wow. Wow. So we'll definitely be having you in a couple other times here in the future. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about sort of the interaction with Book of Mormon Studies today in the students that you have in your class. We'll get to that coming back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Ho, ho, ho. This is Danta Claus from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. Would you like to save huge, massive money this holiday season? Don't throw out that old computer. We can transform that old, slow, or broken down desktop or laptop into fluffy, high-speed goodness. No matter what brand it is, just bring your desktop or laptop computer in for a free diagnostic. The diagnostic is 100% free, and there's no obligation. We're so great at making computers faster that if we can't fix or upgrade your desktop or laptop, we'll buy it it from you. Have I lost my mind? Want to trade in your old computer? We have brand new lifetime warranty desktop computers from $29 a month and we'll buy your old computer. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12 months special financing on any PC laptops, desktop, or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Call us at 1-877-596-7283 for details or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com where we love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, we encourage you to do so. Go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. And with your pledge, you're able to help this show continue on and on and on through the many projects of Joseph Spencer so that we can be around as we talk to his uh, talk about his 10th book in a series or 20th book in a series in the future. It's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Now, as a professor, you have an opportunity to be able to uh, visit with the next generations yeah. minds to yeah. be able to see and, and keep a pulse and and while it's at BYU there's probably a little I don't want to say jaded but you have um, you certainly have the the uh, opportunity to be working and uh, and instructing 
those whom are members of our faith in a concentrated area like Provo. Yeah. Uh, what What do you see that this younger generation asking about or, or, or finding their way through that maybe when you were going through school you didn't see yourself doing? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, they certainly seem to have different questions than I had 20 years ago. Give me an idea. What were your questions and what are theirs? Yeah, I think most of my questions, and maybe this is shows that I was already on my way to being a philosopher or theologian. <laughs> my questions tended to be theoretical, like, how does this work, right? Uh, give me an understanding of atonement. Give me an understanding of sin. What is sin? Um, my students tend to be worried primarily about ethical questions, right? Hmm. How do I make sense of Laban's death? Uh, how do I deal with the absence of women in the Book of Mormon? Uh, can I trust Nephi as a prophet or can he be fallible? Like these are the questions that worry my students, mm. keep them up at night. So I come into the class wanting to talk about the structure of first Nephi and they come in wanting to reconcile can, ethics with the book of Mormon. Can we walk out one of those? Uh, which one? I don't care. You pick <laughs> dealer's choice. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, the one I actually enjoy teaching the most is gender okay. in the book of Mormon, because I think the book of Mormon is actually far more complex than it looks at first glance. And in a lot of ways, this is what I end up work, trying to do with students on all these questions. Just show them that the book of Mormon like we can push really hard on this book and it will push back. So with a question like gender, it looks just, yeah, at a brief glance, oh, this looks terrible, right? Yeah. There are three women with names from among the Book of Mormon peoples. Uh, there are almost no women in the story. Uh, is there any way to even fit this into a 21st century context? But if you begin to look slowly and carefully at what's happening with gender in the Book of Mormon, there's some interesting patterns that emerge. Uh, all of the names we have uh, for women, actual named women, uh, are not Nephites. We don't have the name of a single Nephite woman, but we have Lamanite women's names. Hmm. And every story we have where women have some kind of uh, role, they're heroes in a story, they're at the center of things, they're, uh, they have relative uh, equality or some kind of power in a situation, is all in Lamanite contexts. It's uh, in Nephite context specifically that uh, that women seem to be disempowered and treated differently. Uh, and if you start to watch that pattern across the Book of Mormon, you realize there's a Nephite problem here more than there's just a kind of Book of Mormon problem. Hmm. And then you can read, say, the sermon that Jacob gives in early early in the Book of Jacob to the people, to the Nephite people, and condemns Nephite men for what's happening to women and praises what's happening among the Lamanites with respect to men and women. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, tells the Nephites gathered there, if you don't get this right, you will be destroyed and the Lamanites will be preserved. So one way you can read the Book of Mormon is the the lack of women in the story and so on is a, is a function of the fact that we're dealing with a Nephite history and the Nephites got something wrong and they were destroyed for it. Hmm. Uh, so it might actually be that the Book of Mormon is trying to draw our attention directly to what's happening with gender uh, and trying to say, don't do this yourselves in the last days. Wow. I love that because that's not a consideration I've ever had in reading of the Book of Mormon. Do your students just go <laughs> mind blown and yeah. they just sort of sit there and go, okay, I'm going to need a minute, Joe. I'm just going to, I mean, Professor Spencer, right? I'm yeah. going to need, I'm going to need a minute. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with that being such not counter necessarily to, to how we, um, you know, early on we're, we're taught the Book of Mormon. Like, how do you, how do you reach that? How do you, how do you f find that connection? What, what led you to, to be able to, to diagnose or to look at the Book of Mormon that way? I think that's yeah. fascinating. It's, uh, I mean, it's this kind of slow experimental work, right? Just sort of, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the question hit me again and again and again. And like, what do we do? Why how, Why are there no women? And uh, I have enough of a conviction regarding the restoration. I'm like, there's got to be an answer. Uh. So I just start reading slowly all the stories about women. Um, 
trying to think about it, what's here, what's there, and just slowly this picture starts to emerge. Hmm. Uh, and reading it with others is a major part of that, right? Someone else sees something you don't see and it wakes you up because you're kind of in a rut of your own reading. And so, yeah, reading with others and then just trying to keep it open. What could be going on here? And slowly patterns emerge and things bubble up to the surface. I'm going to make you walk out another one of those examples that you gave as well. Can we talk about Laban? Yeah, Laban's harder. Okay. Uh, Well, I want to put you on the spot. Yeah. This isn't just, you know, a coasting (laughs) interview, Joe. Yeah, it's it's a hard one because... well, okay, so the the way that I try to make sense of it is something like this. It seems to me that the story is far, far more complicated than than I, any quick treatment of it, right? Mm-hmm. So we have sort of two extremes that tend to crop up. We either just say something like, well, look, God commands it, it's fine, get over it. Mm-hmm. Or we say something like, God could never command such a thing, so Nephi's misheard God. These are our two options, right? Uh, but it seems to me the story is far, far more complicated, and as a result, far more interesting, Uh, So what do we have? We have, right before they go back to get the plates, uh, Nephi has a conversation with God, his first, Mm -hmm. uh, in which he's told, uh, if you you keep the commandments, then you're going to be led to a land of promise and so on. And then he says, if you, Nephi, individually keep the commandments, uh, you're going to be made a ruler and a teacher of your brothers. The first of those seems to be plural, says, inasmuch as ye which is plural in early modern English. But when he says the other promise, it's in as much as thou, individually, Nephi. Uh, and then what happens is Nephi comes immediately back from that conversation, and Lehi says, I've just received a commandment. And Nephi's got to go, ah, oh, that's the thing. Like, that's the thing I just heard about. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm going to do this. I will go and do, right? Uh, so he announces this fidelity, and off they go. And he is just hitting this word commandments, 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 all through these failed attempts to get the plates. Um but all through it, he seems to be privileging commandments for himself alone. And he's forgetting this in as much as ye and focusing on in as much as thou, mm-hmm. which seems to mean he's taken this task of uh, keeping commandment as something that makes him good. If I do this, then I'm going to be righteous in God's eyes. I will be better than my brothers. And so the situation goes on like that until finally he finds himself going alone in the dark into Jerusalem. Uh, and he comes on Laban's body, and now the spirit, and it's interesting, after so many instances of the word commandment, it uses the word constrain. The spirit constrains him, as if Nephi can't quite admit <laughs> that this is a commandment suddenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the spirit constrains him to kill Laban, and he balks. And suddenly there's a sort of revealed that Nephi's relationship to God here has not been all he's been saying it is, right? It's mm-hmm. this much more complicated psychological affair. And when the spirit starts to explain to him that he's got to kill Laban and starts giving him arguments, reasons, uh, he doesn't just say, the way we tend to read it is, well, he explains the logic, right? It's okay to kill one person for a whole nation to be fine. Right. Uh, But that's not how Nephi tells the story. He says, the spirit said this thing, right? Uh, It's better that one man should perish, et cetera. And then Nephi doesn't say, so I went, oh, I see. That's how it works. (laughs) So I killed the guy. Right. (laughs) Instead, he says, when I heard these words, I remembered the covenant. I remembered what the Lord had told me in the wilderness. So he goes back to the beginning of the story and he says, I remembered him saying, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments. And we can't keep the commandments without the law of Moses. So Nephi presents it as the Spirit's words are not what make him realize a logic. The Spirit's words make him realize he's been misconstruing the covenant. Hmm. And so then suddenly Nephi, the whole story is about Nephi coming to realize that this is not about his own righteousness. This is not about whether he's good enough and that kind of a thing, but it's about a much more complicated national affair. 
I love the way that you walk that out because as I'm thinking of like checking boxes and things that we do, you know, specifically yeah. for our own strength, like look no further than maybe yourself or your own congregation. And you know those people who would act as such. That's, yeah. that's a fascinating reading of, of that particular story. Yeah. So I think by the end, Nephi Nephi's learned something rather than just been obedient. Yeah. I'm I'm just sort of mouth agape listening to your story <laughs> and 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 ex- explanation of it. Do you, do you find that um there are some people who kind of just say no 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 nice try your your interpretation or this the you know this this theory of what this could be nope no thank you it's clearly this absolutely and, and what do you do what do you do when you have someone who is so staunch is it just good for you you think that way I think this way yeah I mean mild persuasion I hope right because yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah sometimes uh, certainly. And it's it's important, I think, to recognize that these are experiments we're running, mm-hmm. right? So it's a sort of like, here's one way of reading all this data. Tell me what you think. So I appreciate resistance. I want resistance that's not just, no, that's wrong, mm-hmm. right? I want resistance going to say, but what about this detail in the text? Or what about that? Can't that mean this? Uh, open further possibilities. Yeah, let's run other experiments. But yeah, you do certainly encounter people who'll just be like, no, that's not what it says. I've, I've heard this a million times. I know what this says. Mm. Okay, well, then you try to say, well, how do you understand that? How do you understand that? There's something more in the text here. Do you have many um, students or I guess just individuals in general knowing your field of study and and the way that you can kind of walk things out? And as you mentioned, your commitment to uh, not only your covenants, but the, you know, the basis of the Book of Mormon and also the faith. Do you have people that come to you and ask you questions and say, listen, I'm really struggling. Can you help me walk through this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these days that's part of being a religion professor at BYU is yeah. that you get people coming to your office saying, I'm in the midst of a faith crisis. What do I do? How, how do you... How do you treat that? That seems that seems to me like both a blessing that someone would trust you that much to say, "Listen, I'm struggling. Here's what's vulnerable about me. I'm trying to walk that out." But also the responsibility part, where it's like, even though it's you know it's ultimately that person's choice and they choose what they do and and going on, that you have an opportunity to speak into that very pivotal point in their life. Yeah, uh, I sort of have two strategies. Okay, depending on where the person's at or how they're feeling. So first is what uh, I sometimes call the Hugh Nibley effect. What I mean by this is that uh, very, very few people read Hugh Nibley, but they all bought his books, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and they, they bought his books and put them on the shelf because sure. they just needed to know that someone that smart, who had read that many things, could speak that many languages, still believed. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's enough just to help someone see, like, I have, I've, I've heard these same concerns, right? I've been there. I've read this material. Uh, and I'm here. And some people, they just need to know that. They're not alone. Mm-hmm. And that someone else can also have read all of that and stay and hold on. And they're like, okay, I can calm down. I can put this on hold while I'm, you know, remaining faithful. So some people just need the Hunibly effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but others, the, the way that this tends to play out is um, I tend to ask, uh, ask them what they know about the subject that's freaking them out. Uh, because it usually turns out that uh, we get upset by just dabbling in a problem mm-hmm. much more than really getting to the bottom of it. So I'll have a student come into my office and say, I learned this thing about Isaiah, right? There's parts of Isaiah that shouldn't be in the Book of Mormon because they're supposedly written later. And so when I say, okay, good, good, good. So tell me about second Isaiah, right? And they're like, uh, what do you mean? I'm like, well, tell me, like, what's the content of second Isaiah? What's the message of second Isaiah? Well, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. 
and you're about to walk away over like slow way down. There's stuff to think about here, but you've got to actually get to the bottom of it. You can't just get one little detail and go running, right? Or I learned about this thing about polygamy. Okay, so what do you know about the history of polygamy? What right. do you know about the history of marriage? Uh, well, I mean, people get married. Well, okay, now, if you don't know anything about this, slow way down, slow way down. So that's the other sort of strategy, I suppose, is just to help people see that they've just barely gotten the first glimpse. And this is something that it takes years to really get to the bottom of. You can't just run off. Do you think that people do slow way down or do you think some just kind of go, yep, forget it out? Yes, a lot, right? Uh, and I don't, I don't know uh, how to solve that problem. I try, right? Mm-hmm. I try to give answers and so on and so forth as best I can. But yeah, some people just be like, if it's that complicated, then obviously I can't. Yeah. Uh, right. But many people will go, whoa, whoa, you're right. My gosh. My gosh, what am I doing? Right. <laughs> uh, what do I actually know here? Ooh, that was kind of freaky that I did that. Is there a modern day Nibley? I know Nibley is not, you know, too far in the in the past, yeah. but is there someone or some ones today that I think people look to and go, you know what? I haven't read Blank's books, but they're on my shelves. And yeah. Uh, I think if there's a if there's a Nibley in the 21st century, it's probably Terrell Givens. Right. I think Terrell's got uh, something like the same sensibility that Nibley had in a lot of ways. Uh, And he's written for such like a profoundly uh, wide audience. Right. Uh, And I think that that is that's someone that people can grab hold of. At the same time, though, I I think it's probably impossible for there to be another Nibley. Mm -hmm. Um, The times have changed enough. We don't have people who are so sort of generalist as Mm -hmm. Nibley was. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And. Nibley had uh, a relationship to leaders of the church that's basically impossible for scholars today. The church is so big. Leaders of the church have so much on their plate. But Nibley was friends with like everyone in the Quorum of the Twelve. So he could have a certain kind of support and they would use him and give him a voice in the church magazines. And it's just not the way the church works today. Are there particular questions that as you've studied the Book of Mormon or just, you know, the the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that you have had to slow way down on? And tell me about maybe one of those. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like that's what I do with all the topics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one that uh, anything that's bothered me, is that kind of what you're... Yeah. 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 Um, and, and sort of how you found your way through it, because I think, you know, someone can can hear you and it seems like it, yeah, you were able to look at it and analyze and focus. And I think there's a certain amount of like empathy or shared, you know, um, sort of questioning that when they hear you and be able to walk through it, that they can go, oh, OK. So yeah. there, there are answers out there. There are other people who have struggled with these particular things and can still find themselves within the faith. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, and, and I don't mean this is like a patting myself on the back or anything like that, but I've actually never had a strong sense of faith crisis. Really? Uh, and I don't know if that's just my disposition or whatever, but for me, all this all this study and so forth is um, it's just driven by a kind of deep love for the restoration. Uh, but along the way, of course, I just encounter stuff, and so then I've got to sort those things out. But none of them have like sent me into a spiral or something like that. So most of the reason I've gone into difficult issues is with a kind of pastoral aim. I see others struggling, and then I think, well, there's got to be a way to understand this. And so I get to work on it. But the closest thing to this maybe that I've experienced um, it was more like an existential crisis rather mm-hmm. than a faith crisis. Uh, when I first really, for the first time, uh, really began to see uh, what grace is doing in scripture. It kind of freaked me out. Okay, and, tell me. Yeah, and it wasn't that it was like, oh no, what if the gospel's not true? It was just <laughs> like, a, wait, what? I thought I'd understood this, right? I thought I knew that how this all works. And so um, 
so that was it was yeah this kind of like well then what on earth is the gospel i don't even know how i'm saved apparently right uh and so i slowed way down and i think maybe 20 years later i'm getting there so, <laughs> so give me an idea on. what did you think it was and what what have you found it to be or yeah i mean i think i grew up with sort of the same idea any one of my generation grew up with something like uh well we know how grace is like that's the thing the baptists believe in right uh-huh. uh, we know we're saved by our works right uh, i just kind of grown up with that and yeah great you're saved by grace after all you can do but after all you can do uh maybe god will help you out a little or something uh and as i began reading the Book of Mormon series, I was like, look, there's grace everywhere here. And uh, and then I read Stephen Robinson, and that kind of rocked me. Uh, but I also didn't feel entirely settled after reading Stephen Robinson. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so then it was just this question of, okay, so what is it saying? How do we understand it? And uh, yeah, and that's been a slow years and years long project. So now years later, how do you look at grace differently than, yeah, yeah, after all I can do, sure, <laughs> that'll make up the, the spare. Yeah. Uh, I think the picture is something like this. The um, And one of the essays in this book is actually a detailed examination of this question. Cool. Um, but uh, the the way I look at it is the, the two formulas we find in Scripture, all Scripture, Book of Mormon as well, but all Scripture, are that we're saved by grace. It's always said that way. Mm-hmm. And we're judged by our works. But what we tend to develop is a picture in which we're, in fact, saved by our works and judged by grace. Like, that's Mm. how we tend to think about it, right? Mm. So we tend to think of ourselves as sort of like, well, I do everything I can to be saved. and But then God is merciful. So when I get judged, he's not going to judge me harshly. He's going to make a lot of latitude. But we've inverted what the scriptures have to say when we think that way. And instead, the picture here is grace is what saves. Grace redeems you. Grace is there from the beginning. Grace is what makes any good possible. Uh, and with that grace, we, we can be transformed and do good. And then God will look at our works and say, how did you respond to grace? Hmm. So I think the judge by works, saved by grace picture is the one that gets it perfectly clear in the scriptures. Wow. Again, people are just listening, going, (laughs) mind kind of blown. Because it is. I mean, I think we, I don't know how old you are, but I think we're of the same generation. And that's very much the feelings that I've had most of my life. Where It's like, do all you can do. And then, you know, here we go. He's going to come scoop you up and be like, yeah, you you tried real hard. Here you go. And and welcome to it. But that inverse, the way that, you know, the scripture actually reads to be able to do it. I I love having this conversation. I want to take another break. When we come back, we'll ask you the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall and we'll wrap this sucker up. Uh, We'll be back in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, invite you to find the Cultural Hall back row. Room for everyone in the back row. Over 225 people hanging out there having tangential conversations about the episodes of the Cultural Hall that they hear. Uh, You don't have to pay anything to be a part of that group. You can just find us on Facebook and ask to join. We do have to admit you, and we look at you and go, yeah, okay, we haven't denied anyone yet. It's the Cultural Hall back row. Join us there, won't you? 
uh, that's an invitation for you too, Joseph. You're sure. welcome to, to come find it and speak into conversations where we're like, Joseph said, you know, he liked uh, this particular drink. Where can you find that drink in this area? Like that, <laughs> those are the kind of conversations that, that exist within there. It is no small task to write a book and you have several irons in the fire. As you continue to publish it and, and put these things out for people to read, is it... Is it God-led? Is it a way to establish scholarship for you, which allows you know different monetary opportunities? What's the drive to continue to do so dang much? Yeah, it's definitely not monetary. <laughs> <laughs> Academic books make you nothing. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, I mean, it does feel to me God-led, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to be careful with that because who am I to say, right? But um, but it's certainly what I hope I'm doing. And uh, yeah, it feels like a calling. And it's stuff that, I mean, really, I don't think I ever would have written anything if I'd found the books I wanted to read. Like when I huh. first got back from my mission, I was like ready to read everything I could on the gospel. And I went out and read things and I was like, well, that's not what I saw in the scriptures or that's not what I've understood. And uh, I started going, well, why isn't anyone talking about the things I want to hear? Mm-hmm. And then slowly began writing about the things that I wanted to read and uh, here I am years later now writing at a furious pace. But it, at some point that transformed from just sort of like, well, this has to be said to, wow, I'm seeing all kinds of things and these need to be a part of the conversation. Is, is there any one experience that you could point to or would feel comfortable sharing where you feel like this is clearly not of my own, but this is either inspiration or instruction or anything like that that's spoken into any of your writings? Boy, that's a good question. Um I mean, I feel like it's kind of constantly there. I do. I, I mean, just full disclosure, right? I don't ever write without praying. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, I do. I always pray beforehand and try to consecrate what I'm doing, uh, in part to try to like get the ego out, right? Yeah. And uh, and also because I take really seriously the passage in Ether 12 where Moroni is struggling with writing, mm. right? Struggling with the placing of his words and so on and he feels his weakness when he writes. Like, I get that. <laughs> I'm trying to communicate something that I think is really important and so on and I'm stumbling over my words and it's hard to say and, uh, and so on. So I try to pray Moroni's prayer and just get my ego out and just write and hope it does good for the kingdom. Wow. That's pretty inspirational, and I appreciate your work, uh, not only this, but your stuff with the Introduction to Mormon Thought. Look forward to the other stuff that you have in the future. It sounds exhausting, and I know I keep bringing that up that you have so many things, but to to have you here with me speaking as well as you do about all of the things that you have spoken about and know that you are teaching classes and you have these things and the due dates and all these things, I just, I'm in in awe of you and, and what you're doing. Um, it's come to that time where we ask the three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I believed you answered these before, but it's worth a check-in. Yeah. Uh, do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Ah, uh, well, that's changed since the last time I was here. Okay. Uh, I am currently a bishop. <laughs> <laughs> How is that? That just seems like one other... <laughs> well, since we're in the middle of tithing settlement, yeah, yeah. it's a lot. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, but I'm very new. I've only been a bishop for a few weeks, but uh, yeah, it's heavy, but it's also, it's a really rewarding thing. Yeah. T- talk to me a little bit about it, because as I've <laughs> thought, like I'll be moving to a, a new neighborhood and I have no I have no expectation, anticipation, <laughs> want to ever do something like that. But like I see people of my same age and, and committing the time to do that, that seems like so much in addition to all you're already doing. What's the experience been like so far for you? Yeah, it is a lot. Uh, it is a lot. But it's also, uh, I mean, there's a certain sense in which uh, you're 
what can I say it this way? Uh, there's some sense in which you feel sort of finally free, right? Oh, what do you mean by that? Um, because you want to help and you want to you want to sort of speak openly and so on, but you're always sort of trying to be a little deferential, right? You mm-hmm. want to just make sure you're not stepping on the toes of local leadership and so on. You don't want to speak for them or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get called to that position and you can sort of just uh, say pastorally what you want to say. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that sounds a little strange because it sort of sounds like, I don't know, I was like harnessed or yeah. something before. But uh, but there is something about it. It just sort of feels like, okay, I can just speak directly to the situation. I can just let the spirit do its work and I don't have to... I don't have to sort of manage sort of social expectations here. I can just speak to this situation. Was it overwhelming when you got called? Uh, it was a bit <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely. Um, and I thought I dodged it. I, I, I knew our bishop was going to be released. Uh-huh. He'd been in there five years. And, and I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm hoping. And But enough time had passed. And. I thought I was clear, and no, I wasn't clear. <laughs> so. uh, you know, one other question, just because I feel like you, you, you're pretty open, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, n- knowing that something like that is such a tremendous commitment, w- was there some soul searching and and being like, yeah, this is right, or was or are you of the kind that's like, well, it must be because I was called, and they'll figure that out after. I do mostly trust that. Uh, I mean, like ninety nine percent of me trusts and just says, yeah, I'm, I trust God is in this. Uh, but actually, I mean, one thing I learned I didn't know about until I got called as a bishop is that, uh, that I mean, I knew that it, it, it all has to be like approved up the chain and so on. But uh, but it gets approved by the first presidency. Mm. And uh, so I got to read the letter from the first presidency, right? And that sort of wakes you up a little and you kind of go, okay, this isn't just fooling around, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. The discussions and the talks from your ward. <laughs> Record them. I'd love to hear them. Uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Uh, uh, I mean, my favorite callings I've had are uh, are certainly uh, being a gospel doctrine teacher just because I love teaching. It's, right. Uh, I, I could do it all day, every day. Uh, and early morning seminary teacher. I did three and a half years of that and enjoyed that immensely. Wow. Yeah. wow. Uh, and then the last question that we ask everyone and ask you to interpret it however you may, but the question <laughs> remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Favorite part of my faith? Mm. Probably uh, the, the, the sense of community I feel with the saints. Um, I, I, I absolutely adore that there is such a... And, and this is one thing that seems to transcend even political boundaries uh, among the saints. There really is a kind of sense of we're all here together. Uh, we're all going to go put up the chairs in the <laughs> cultural <laughs> hall, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, this, that really um, does something, right? It breaks down boundaries and allows us to have a shared commitment to what God is doing in the world. And that uh, that's the thing that sort of, uh, I don't know, wakes me up in the morning and gets me out of bed. That's awesome. Uh, the name of the book is The Anatomy of Book of Mormon Theology. It's from the folks over at Greg Coford Books. You can find a link in the show notes to be able to uh, pre-order that, as it's not even out and available yet, <laughs> but for that person in your life that, that you feel like, man, they would love something like this, a great holiday Christmas gift uh, for them. I encourage you to do that. And you can also check out the uh, previous episodes. I'll, I'll tag uh, in our show notes when um, Joseph was here previously, and also our episodes with Terrell Givens and Patrick Mason. So if you don't know who those individuals are, you can get in a sense for who they are. Uh, Joe, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body. <laughs> that, if, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. 
fade me a seat. It's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the cultural hall show.